Okay, you ready? You can hear me okay? Great, we're on? Perfect. Awesome. Let's go. I'm Peter Little, lead pastor at Christ Pacific Church in Huntington Beach, California. We're cultivating a community of faith, hope, and love that follows Jesus into the world. And you're listening to our Sunday Sermons podcast. To learn more about us or to subscribe to this podcast, visit us at cpchb.org. Thanks for listening. Do you remember these? wonder if I can set something on fire up here. Yeah, I don't know. Magnifying glasses, right? They make things big so that you can see them more clearly. They make the details and the intricacies of things more available to your eyesight so you can see the splendor and the detail of creation. Things like the hair on legs of spiders. Isn't that magnificent? Or things like the petals of a flower. Magnifying glasses magnify those things, make them bigger so that we can see them more clearly. And uh, as you probably know, you can also focus the power of the sun with a magnifying glass, and uh, you can actually set things on fire. Have you ever done that? Come on, be honest. I actually haven't, but that would be kind of fun to try. You can, you can focus the power of the sun through one of these things, and it becomes so powerful that you can actually light things on fire. So I've heard, don't try that at home. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because Mary, in that song she sings that Vicki just read, Mary, the mother of Jesus, she magnifies the Lord. Right? It begins with these words, my soul magnifies the Lord. And uh, maybe some of you have a history or a tradition in choirs or things like that. And so you would know this song maybe as the Magnificat. Because that's the word magnify in Latin. And it's always cooler to say things in Latin than in English. So uh, it just means magnify. My soul magnifies the Lord. In other words, her soul lifts up the Lord. So that both she and we can see the Lord more clearly. And specifically, Mary lifts up the power and mercy of the Lord. She magnifies God's power. She magnifies God's mercy in order that we can see it more clearly. And through her magnifying glass, as she magnifies the Lord, what happens is her heart is actually lit on fire for the Lord. And my hope this morning is that as we magnify the power of God, as we look more closely at God's power, and as we look more closely at God's mercy, as we magnify that, that his power would also light our hearts on fire. That we would come and adore him. That our hearts would burn with desire to lift up the name of the one who has come to rescue us in his power and in his mercy. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into the Magnificat. You ready? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you that you have come, that you're good, that you're patient, that you're kind, and that you're present. We thank you that you are powerful and merciful. We thank you that you are powerful enough to show your mercy and that you are merciful enough to wield your power for our benefit. We want to behold you today. 
We want to adore you today. So would you help our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our ears to do that as we listen to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mary, the mother of Jesus, sings this song of worship when she discovers that she will carry the Son of God in her womb. Can you imagine? That worship song celebrates God's power and God's mercy. And we're going to put a magnifying glass on God's power and God's mercy this morning. And we're going to see that the power of God's outstretched arm mercifully embraces us. If you don't remember anything else this morning, I want you to go home remembering that. That the power of God's outstretched arm mercifully embraces us. Mary's song, the Magnificat, it's, uh, it's like a power sandwich. Might be referring it this morning as a power Sammy. It's got power in between two slices of honey wheat mercy. Stay with me here. It's honey wheat mercy because it's so sweet. Okay, it's a power sandwich. There's power in the middle. Mercy on either side. Mary sings about God's mercy. Then she sings about God's power. Then she sings about God's mercy again. It goes mercy, power, mercy. It's a power sandwich with two slices of honey wheat mercy on either side. Do you see that? We're going to talk about this power sandwich. We're going to talk about the interplay between the mercy and the power of God. So we're going to talk first about God's power. Verse 51, Mary says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has shown strength with his arm. And with that strength or with that power, he's done at least three things. If you read on in verse 51, 52, and 53, he's done at least three things with his power. To the proud, he has scattered the thoughts of their hearts. To the powerful, he has dethroned them. And to the rich, he has sent them away empty-handed. Now that's kind of brutal, right? God dethrones, God sends away empty-handed, and God scatters the thoughts of our hearts. Really? Yes. And we're going to see that that is an act of mercy as God exercises his power to scatter the thoughts of the proud, to dethrone the powerful. And to send the rich away empty-handed. So let's talk about pride and power and wealth. And a quick side note here I think is appropriate. A side note about both power and wealth. So that you continue to listen. So you don't check out as soon as we start talking about power and wealth. First of all, power. It's possible to have power or influence... And to humbly use it in ways that honor Jesus Christ. Right? The Apostle Paul was a perfect example of this. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he was a man of significant social position, a man of significant influence, a man of significant education, and he used all of that power, all of that influence as leverage to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, power is not the problem. Paul had lots of power in that respect. Power is not the problem. It's the misuse of power that's the problem. And same with wealth. It's also possible to have significant wealth and rather than worship it, just leverage it for the purposes of God. And Lydia 
was a perfect example of this. Lydia is a woman of significant means. We read about her in Acts chapter 16. She receives the good news of Jesus Christ. And what does she do? She begins to offer her resources, her home, in order to advance the gospel. I have a friend who has been beautifully using her wealth to extend hospitality to a growing number of people, myself included. You know people like this as well. Wealth is not the problem. Placing our hope in wealth is the problem. And God's powerful arm reaches out and he scatters the thoughts of the proud. He dethrones the powerful and he sends the rich away empty-handed. So let's talk about the proud. The Lord scatters the thoughts of the proud. This is an act of mercy. I'm going to be saying this all morning. It's an act of mercy. You see, the proud think that they have all that they need within themselves. I got this covered. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. They do not need God, the proud. As long as a proud person trusts in his own ingenuity, in his own skill set, then there's no space in his life to trust in the living God who gives that ingenuity, who offers that skill set. Before I was a follower of Jesus, I honestly felt no need for God. It was only once Jesus began to speak to me through his word and through two friends in college. It's only when he began to speak to me that I realized, oh, you know what? I actually do need God. And I'm a really slow learner, like very slow. So even 13 years after I acknowledged, after I first acknowledged my need for God, I still didn't really realize that I needed him. It was 2011. I was a new pastor. I had just begun serving at Community Presbyterian Church in Buckley, Washington. I was a solo pastor there, and I had been serving in pastoral roles since 2002. But in 2011, this was the first time that I was preaching every week, in addition to all the other pastoral responsibilities I had. And when you're a solo pastor— you preach every Sunday, every Sunday of the year. I remember being about 12 weeks into preaching every Sunday of the year. I remember being about 12 weeks in. I had preached 12 sermons in a row, and I thought to myself, that's all I got. I'm out of material. That's it. I had 12 weeks in me. I've got 2,000 weeks to go. I'm 12 weeks in and I'm out. That's all I've got. This was a very important moment for me as a pastor. Because the truth was, I had some decent content for 12 weeks. And the Lord broke in and he scattered the thoughts of my proud heart. And he said, okay, Peter, great job. You did it for 12 weeks. Now, for the next two or three thousand weeks, how about you trust me? How about you stop trusting in yourself and you begin trusting in me? You see, God took me off my little throne. It's a little throne. It's my last name. He took me off this little throne and he took his rightful place on the throne of my life. He's like, okay, Peter, from here on out, here's the deal. You're going to trust me. Because I'm the one who should be sitting on 
the throne. It was an act of mercy. God scattered the thoughts of my proud heart. What about you? Are there ways in which your proud thoughts actually displace God? Do you think you've got everything you need in order to do what God is calling you to do? In order to be the man or woman God is calling you to be? I thought I did. I wonder if we shouldn't pray a little bit that God would mercifully scatter our thoughts. In the places in our lives where we are prideful, where we believe we don't need God. I wonder if we shouldn't just pray, God, would you scatter those prideful thoughts? Scatter the thoughts of my heart. And God will exercise his power in order to mercifully rescue us from ourselves. This is a power sandwich. It's served on honey wheat mercy. I hope you remember that too. Secondly, the Lord dethrones the powerful, right? So first he scatters the thoughts of the proud. Secondly, he dethrones the powerful. Again, this is a redemptive act. This is a merciful act. As long as the powerful person is on his or her throne, there is no room for God to sit there. And the throne is a one-seater. It's only room for one. And by lowering the prideful from their thrones, God is using, God is placing us in a position where we can recognize who God is. The one who alone will rightfully sit on that throne. I remember a friend of mine telling a story of his household growing up. His household where his dad would often explode in anger. His dad was like the king in this household, accountable to nobody. He was under nobody else's authority. And that was scary for my friend growing up. Later in life, when he became a Christian, he learned that the problem was his father wasn't behaving, wasn't living, wasn't acting under the authority of King Jesus. My friend realized that even his father rightfully sits under the authority of someone else, under the authority of his father in heaven. That reality would have changed the whole dynamic of his household growing up. If his father would have operated under the authority of our father in heaven, who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So I wonder, how about you? Are there ways in which you are too hungry for power? Or ways in which you are abusing the power that you have? Maybe lording over others. Consider the most powerful person who ever lived. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How might you use your power and your influence to serve others? It strikes me that Mary, the mother of Jesus, used her power, her influence, to bear the Son of God into the world. Amazing privilege. What privilege is God inviting you into to exercise your power on behalf of his kingdom? The third thing that God's power does is it sends the rich away empty-handed. Again, This is mercy. It's mercy in disguise, but it's mercy. 
You might remember one time a rich young man approached Jesus because he was a little self-conscious about whether or not he was going to inherit eternal life. I think he was a little self-conscious about his great wealth, and he knew deep down in his heart that he loved his wealth more than he loved Jesus. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus, he says, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus saw the stronghold of wealth on this man's life. His wealth was his idol. So Jesus told him that he must tear this idol down. He must renounce it. He must stop worshiping it. It's the only way. Go sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven, Jesus says to this man. And so the man lowered his head with sadness and he walked away. His wealth had him in its grip. He could not let go of his wealth. Might it have been more merciful for Jesus to actually just remove the idol from this man's life? When the Lord in his power sends the rich away empty-handed, it is an act of mercy because in their empty-handedness, those who once worshipped riches are finally able to realize that the promises of wealth do not deliver. The health and happiness and hope that we so often get trapped into chasing after through the accumulation of wealth does not work. It just doesn't deliver. And when God sends us away empty-handed, that's when we can see this most clearly. And you know, you don't need to be wealthy in order for wealth to be an idol. In fact, I think sometimes those who struggle to pay the bills on a month-by-month basis end up putting so much misplaced hope in the possibility of a little more money. Just a little bit more, and then I'll be happy. If only we had a little bit more then we could really live. A person of any means can make wealth into an idol. The problem is not reserved only for wealthy people. So how about you? Does the love of wealth exercise a kind of stronghold in your life? Perhaps we should pray to the Lord that God would send us away empty-handed so that we can learn That more money, more stuff, more retirement plans, more property, these things do not translate into more faith, more hope, and more love, or more eternal life. You see, God exercises his power to mercifully rescue us from worshiping that which we were not designed to worship. God's power. Let's talk a little bit about God's mercy in Mary's Magnificat, her song. Let's talk about these these slices of honey wheat mercy. A few comments about this word mercy. The Greek word used by Mary here is the Greek word elios. Elios is a Greek word that is most often translated into and from the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed refers to this kind of loyal, covenantal, gracious, faithful love that God has for his people. Hesed love is steadfast love. 
It's love that never ceases. It's unconditional love. Hesed is what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he said in Romans chapter 8 that he was convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation would be able to separate us from the Hesed love of God. That's what God's Hesed love is like. It's unfailing. That's what God's mercy is like. It's unfailing. And God demonstrates his steadfast and faithful commitment to his people. And particularly those who find themselves as underdogs in at least three ways in Mary's song. Three ways that God exercises this mercy, Elias, this love, steadfast love has said. First of all, God lifts up the lowly. It's in verse 52. Mary sings that the Lord lifts up the lowly. Think about this. God chooses a poor teenage girl from an insignificant village. And he lifts her from her low estate and puts her in a place of honor. Arguably the most honorable place in human history. But Mary is praising God for his merciful dealings, not just towards her, but towards all people throughout all history. And especially for those of you who have been walking through our entire Bible in 2020, you know that the whole Old Testament is filled with story after story after story of God graciously pursuing his people, having mercy on them even when they turn their backs on him. And Mary recognizes in this song, in this moment, that in Jesus, who at this point is a mere zygote in her womb, Jesus, in Jesus, God would demonstrate his mercy once and for all. His steadfast love for the whole world. For God so has said, loved the world. For God had so much Elias mercy on the world that he gave his one and only son. You see, God sees a world that is lost and broken. And in a sense, every person who has not yet discovered God's mercy is lowly because they have not yet been lifted up into eternal life in Christ. But in Jesus Christ, the gift, who at one point was growing in Mary's womb, through this gift of Jesus, God offers to lift up the lowly. Is that you today? Do you come today feeling low in spirit? Low in hope? Low in emotional capacity? Is your gas tank empty? Have you lost a job? Are you stuck in an unhealthy relationship? Or a cycle of abuse? Maybe we should pray this morning. Ken, maybe we should add this to Monday's prayer list. That God would lift you up. That God would lift you up from the pit and set you free. Put your feet on solid ground, on that solid rock of Jesus Christ. And if that's you and you want somebody to pray for you about that, would you just email us? Prayer at cpchb.org. Prayer at cpchb.org. We would like to be the hands of God lifting you up in prayer. The Lord lifts the lowly. He also fills the hungry. Verse 53. 
In one of his most well-known sermons, Jesus would later say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They will be filled. They will be filled. Do you hunger for righteousness, for right-relatedness with God? Do you hunger and thirst for right-relatedness with your spouse, with your neighbor, with your adult children, with your colleagues? In his mercy, the Lord fills those who hunger and thirst for these things. I hope that you would taste the sweet Elias mercy of the Lord, the sweet steadfast love of the Lord as you come to adore him this Christmas. The Lord fills the hungry. The Lord also helps his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. It's in verse 54. The Lord helps his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And I'm about to land the plane. Mary sings to us that the Lord has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy in accordance to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and Abraham's descendants forever. Who are Abraham's descendants? They are people who, like Abraham and Sarah, have faith in God. Abraham's descendants are people who share in Abraham and Sarah's faith. They are all those who, like Abraham and Sarah, were blessed by God in order to be a conduit of blessing for others. They are the people who were called by God to be the light of God in the world. To be a conduit of God's power and mercy to the nations. And the problem is that Israel, the descendants of Abraham and Sarah, continually failed to be the people God called them to be. So the Lord, in remembrance of his mercy, helped Israel by sending his own son to do what Israel had failed to do. Where Israel had failed to shine the light of God into the darkness, Jesus shone more brightly. Where Israel failed to be the conduit of the Lord's power and mercy to the nations, Jesus exercised his great power and mercy on and for the nations. You see, Jesus himself is the power and mercy of God in human form. Jesus scatters the thoughts of the proud by humbly submitting himself to death on a cross for our sin. Jesus himself dethrones the power hungry by coming in the form of a servant. Jesus himself sends the rich away empty-handed by showing them that it's actually through his extreme poverty that real wealth can be experienced. Jesus lifts those who would be lowered to the grave by their own sin by lifting them up to everlasting life. Jesus fills those who hunger and thirst for right relatedness by giving them a relationship with himself. O come, O come, Emmanuel. He has come. Jesus himself is God's powerful outstretched arm who in an act of mercy is drawing you in and embracing you. And through you, to reach out to the world that doesn't yet know. To reach out to our neighbors and our colleagues and our family and our friends who don't yet know. And embracing them with God's chesed love as well. 
Friends, we have peered through a magnifying glass at the power and mercy of the Lord. And now the opportunity is for us to become magnifying glasses in the hands of our neighbors. So that when our neighbors look at us, they aren't impressed by us, but they are able to see more clearly the power and mercy of God in action. A powerful outstretched arm who in mercy is drawing all people to himself. The invitation is to look through the magnifying glass and then become a magnifying glass in the hands of your neighbors. Friends, come. Let us adore him. Let us worship him. For he is a God of power and mercy. And he's come. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We worship you. Thank you that you are powerful and gracious and merciful. Thank you that you came. And that you came in humility. That you came in dependence. In dependence. And that you showed us what real power looks like. You showed us what real wealth looks like. Thank you, Jesus, that you invite us in. Thank you for your word that shows us who you are. And now in your power and in your mercy, would you equip us by your spirit to be people who demonstrate your power and your mercy? God, equip us that we might exercise the power you've given us in your merciful ways. Protect us from abusing the power you've given us. But rather guide us that we might exercise this power in order to be merciful to our neighbors. And especially to shine your light. To be your people. To be a magnifying glass in the hands of our neighbors. We love you. We worship you. We offer you ourselves today for the sake of your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining our Christ Pacific Sunday Sermon Podcast. To hear more of our sermons or to subscribe or to learn how you can be engaged with what we're up to in Huntington Beach, please visit us at cpc.com.